0: This is episode two of the life story of Sao Noan U, commonly known these days as Nell Adams. Nell was born in 1931 in Shan State as a princess, being the daughter of the Sorbois, or Sao Pa, of Lorsak, a state in the Federated Shan states. Recently I read chapter one of her book called. My vanished World, and what has happened to the Shans since 1962 in particular. We're very fortunate that Nell has agreed to be interviewed, but as she lives in England, it may take a little while until we're able to set that up. But I'm also very pleased to say that Do Tin Ta Sui, O-B-E, who was the head of the Burma service of the BBC, has kindly agreed to read a couple of chapters. But let me continue with chapter two of My Vanish World, which is entitled My Parents and Grandparents. My paternal grandfather, Sao Kun Sui, the sorbois of Lorsak from 1900 to 1943, had a stately and imposing presence, in spite of his wearing the unfashionable loose jacket and baggy trousers. A large man of erect bearing, he had a wrinkled face, piercing eyes, and stern expression. He had a terrible temper, and should things go wrong, he would bellow and shout at everyone in reach. There was, however, another side to his character. He was kind and generous with a sense of fun. Grandfather's approach always heralded. We became accustomed to recognising the rhythmic sound of the telescopic stick with which he walked and the cluck cluck sound he made by clicking his tongue against the roof of his mouth to attract our attention from our play. We would run to him and quietly drop into the floor before him sit in the proper position with our two hands joined to pay our respect. Our eagerness could not be long contained, however. What have you got for us, grandfather? Nothing, nothing at all, with a wicked smile, showing us his empty hands. The teasing was part of the game. He found it amusing to watch our disappointed faces, but only briefly. As soon as he sensed that we had been disappointed long enough, he'd dip his hands into his big pocket and bring out a packet of sweets to be distributed equally amongst us. My grandfather's house, or Long, was a huge wooden mansion, at the front of which were two stairways leading into a large reception room with huge circular teak pillars. Leant against these pillars were full-size mirrors, plain, concave and convex. The purpose of the mirrors remained a mystery. As a child, one was not interested in why they were there. It was enough that they gave us hours of tremendous fun. We would pull faces at each other and never tiring of the game until tears of laughter streamed down our reflected faces. We also used the pillars as stations or places when we played a game called changing the post. The reception room was on two levels, on the higher level of which was a throne. Grandfather would preside here twice a year when district headmen came to pay their tribute to their ruler. The eastern corner of the room was reserved for shrines of Buddha, figures of angels and saints, where fresh food, water and flowers were offered as a thanksgiving. On either side of the reception room were about a dozen or so guest rooms, while directly behind it was grandfather's private sitting room. He had two bedrooms for himself, a cool room for summer and a warm room for winter, and three other bedrooms, one for each of his wives, one of whom was my grandmother, the Mahadevi. It is difficult to imagine how an arrangement of such cohabitation was possible, but in my grandfather's days, polygamy was a common practice amongst the older generation of Sorbois. Although Hall Long was larger and grander than our more humble home, I was not fond of it. It was too huge and dark to be homely, and the compound was equally big with tall brick walls, forming a fortress around it. In the compound, however, it was quite refreshing to be greeted by a gentle cool breeze carrying a lovely scent from the eucalyptus trees on either side of the driveway in the foreground there are a number of buildings used to accommodate servants and the policemen on duty the walled garden behind the house was planted with trees and shrubs including the Bodhi tree which according to legend is a holy tree Buddha Gautama found peace and tranquility under it when he meditated and became enlightened The highlight of grandfather's routine was to have his family and guests gather around him. This took place twice a month, once on the day preceding the night of the full moon, and again on the day before the complete waning of the moon. He invited monks, relatives, state officers, town elders and businessmen to join him in prayers and meditation in the morning, followed by a feasting of many dishes. People of all religious denominations were invited with the non Buddhists coming only after the prayer meeting to join the rest of the guests for lunch. Grandfather loved children and sometimes spoilt us by showering us with pocket money, sweets, and chocolates. When his cook made something special for his meals, he would send a boy to fetch us to share his treat. We appreciated this and devoured almost everything with enthusiasm. One exception, was blank manche. I hated this, but had to pretend to enjoy it. I recall one day after a long monsoon season that it was bright and sunny. So I decided to go out and play in the garden. However, I soon began to shiver. After checking my temperature and dosing me with quinine, my mother sent me to bed. When the news of my illness reached my grandfather, his chauffeur promptly brought him to visit me. He touched my forehead and chanted some prayers. He would do the same when my brothers and sisters were ill. And to us as children, the belief in his prayers was less important than his touch. This was always a comfort, which he never failed to offer. The elderly enjoy reviewing the past into which they travel with increasing frequency. Grandfather was no exception. He loved to tell us stories of his youth. And if we visited him on a rainy day, he would seize the opportunity. At times, he would smile a secret smile on remembering things which he chose not to communicate. Having played an important role in assisting the British in the British-Burma War, he found favor with the British government and had been decorated on three occasions with the KSM, the DSO, and the CIE. He was very proud of his titles and medals. Which he would pin on his ceremonial robes whenever a suitable occasion arose. Delighted in showing them to us as a finale to an episode of storytelling, follow me, children, he would shout, striding into his bedroom where he kept his treasure chests. I have something to show you. We would follow silently, watched as he produced one box, and then from that box, three further smaller boxes. From these, he would Carefully and proudly produce his medals, his precious medals. He had joined the British when the army advanced into Burma in 1886. King Thibaut, who led the Burmese against the British, was a weak man and thus an easy target. He was soon beaten and sent to exile at Ratnagiri, a small town on the coast of India near Bombay. This war in Upper Burma continued for five years. Certain factions of Burmans refused to submit to British rule, formed groups of insurgents or dacoits and attacked the British army. Grandfather, at the age of 23 years, loved the army life. He became very highly thought of by British army officers because he had the necessary skills and aptitude to be a good soldier. He had always loved owning and shooting rifles and thus working with arms and ammunition came easily to him. Later, his hobby became almost an obsession, and by the time he became a sorbois at the age of 37, he had collected many, some of which he used for hunting and others for defence. In 1931, following a peasant uprising in central Burma, certain parts of Shan State were invaded. The insurgents came from Mandalay, via Hispore and further into northern villages of Lawsark, Grandfather's men, briefed by him and armed with his rifles, were successful in protecting the villages and driving the insurgents out of the Shan state. Loyal to the British government, he had an abiding interest in the royal family and followed their progress as a regular listener to the BBC radio station. His loyalty, however, was not an unquestionable one. His first loyalty was to his own people, and if central government's policies were not in their best interest, he could be stubborn and uncooperative. As a ruler, he was powerful and sometimes explosive, and central government officials respected his position. They would treat him with caution and diplomacy. As the most senior and longest serving ruler, he was treated with great respect by the other Sorbois, and they sought his opinions and advice on state matters. My paternal grandmother, Sao Nang Mien, was grandfather's eldest wife. She was tall and well dressed with a quiet, gentle, and loving nature. She was undemanding and seemed to require very little to make her happy. Unlike grandfather's youngest wife, Nan Mi grandmother chose not to accompany her husband on his outdoor expeditions. Grandma, don't you want to go with grandfather? I would ask sometimes curiously. No, I'm all right as I am, she would say, and continued plodding away to the pagoda to, one, to do one of her many dutiful tasks. She was always so calm and peaceful that I do not remember her ever being provoked into a temper. Grandfather sometimes, without sparing her feelings, teased her, but she would smile and remain silent. Her vocation, in many ways, seemed to resemble that of a nun praying, meditating, and helping needy people. My father, Sao Kun Sa, was grandfather's only child, and his birth was a great joy and pride to his parents, especially to his father, because he was not only the first child, but his heir as well. Grandfather enjoyed the outdoor life. At the end of the monsoon season, he with his youngest wife, Nung Mi, and a few servants would drive to the country and stay there for many weeks, leaving the administration to his ministers. Tents would be erected by clear running streams surrounded by forest and hills, and each day carrying a rifle My grandfather would roam the woods. As soon as his son had begun to walk, he had been taken along to appreciate the life in which his father reveled. When he was older, but still a child, he'd been shown how to handle rifles until he had mastered the art of shooting. His father taught him how to aim at flying objects. And when he thought that my father was ready to shoot a bird, he had shouted excitedly shoot, shoot. My father first froze and then ran. Unlike his father, he did not enjoy killing animals. He detested hurting even the smallest living creature. Grandfather explained to his son that killing animals was not against the Buddhist law. Men had hunted and killed animals for survival since time had begun. My father's reply, though polite, was always adamant. I don't like killing animals, sir. Grandfather talked and coaxed. At first, patiently, but when after many attempts had failed to persuade, he was disappointed and angry. You are listening too much to your mother's teachings and she is making you into a sissy instead of a man. Perhaps this apparent disappointment in his son resulted in grandfather adopting his nephew, the son of his younger sister as his second son. Sao Huck was a few years younger than father, but like grandfather, he was broad with a large face, piercing eyes and bushy eyebrows. There was nothing that Sao Huck would not do to please grandfather who took him everywhere, especially on his camping expedition. In spite of this, Sao Huck seemed to feel insecure and continually competed with father for grandfather's love and affection. My grandfather and father, because of their differences in personalities and strong principles, often clashed. Grandfather was quick to make a decision and wanted instant action on everything. On the other hand, father would not make a decision until he had studied all the pros and cons or seen all the evidence when passing judgment on anybody suspected of a crime. I remember on one occasion when father had been summoned by grandfather to the palace. Father later told us that grandfather had wanted him to punish a boy, I Lake, whom he believed had stolen a silver cup from the palace. Father told grandfather that he would see the boy in court the following day, but grandfather was not satisfied. He wanted father to, to pass sentence on the boy there and then. Father, of course, refused, and this angered his father, who started shouting and ranting and said that his adopted son, Sal Huck, would never have gone against his judgment. At that moment, I hated grandfather for being unfair to father and always comparing Sal Huck to him. Every time there'd been disagreement between father and his father. My mother would become very upset. Can't you bring the rule for justice once to please your father? But father would not budge. He would explain to my mother that as a state judge, should he break the law, all the people would think that they were entitled to do so. The country would turn into chaos. We stayed out of grandfather's sight for a few weeks until he cooled down and sent for us to go and have lunch with him a reconciliation. In spite of wanting his way, I'm sure grandfather must in the end have realized that father was right and in his heart of hearts, admired his son for his convictions and for standing up to him. Father was sent to Tangji to be educated at Shan Chief School, built specially for the sons and relatives of Soboi. From here, he went on to study judicial affairs so that as a Kim he would be equipped to take over some of the administrative responsibilities and duty of a state judge. When I think of my father it is mainly of his smiling face and his good and kind nature. If we were ill when we were very young he would carry us on his shoulder walking and crooning so that calmed we would fall asleep. Mother also patiently nursed and dosed us with medicine, but it was Father who sat by our bedside, cooling our theatres and relieving our headaches with a cold compress. Although of a tall parentage, Father failed to grow more than five feet tall. I am reminded of him when Ronnie Corbett, the comedian, appears on television. I was told by a member of Father's family that his growth had been stunted as a result of a serious accident when he was very young. He had fallen from an elephant's back and been badly injured when the elephant trampled on him. Father never mentioned the accident and his lack of height did not detract his appearance. He paid attention to his grooming and always looked impeccable and dignified. At 24 years of age, my father married my mother Sao Ven Kiao, the daughter of the Sorbois of Kentung. In that time, there was no motor road from Lorsak to Kentung. So they traveled on horseback, taking nearly a month to travel 300 miles each way. My mother had been educated in an Italian convent where she had learned to read and write in Kun, a mixture of Shan and Thai languages. She had been taught elementary English and mathematics, as well as non-academic ones like needlework, knitting and sewing. Cooking had been learned from her mother. My mother was 15 years of age when she married, and in order to lessen the pain of separation from her parents, Kentung grandfather had provided an entourage of maids and servants to accompany her to Lorsok, some of whom remained with her, Father was a patient, understanding and loving husband to his young wife, and she in turn became dependable and supportive. They were well suited and enjoyed each other's company. Although she was very young, my mother was intelligent and eager to learn. She welcomed the challenges of her new life as a Kim Mong's wife and learned to adapt. She was attractive, elegant hostess, with a natural charm that drew people to her. And she provided unstinted hospitality to all classes of society. She was loved and respected by all with whom she had contact and her servants adored her. She entertained foreign guests when they came on state as well as friendly visits. And it was for her grandfather sent when he needed somebody to organize and host a grand celebration. Both my grandfather and grandmother were fond of her and accepted her as a daughter they never had. My maternal grandfather, Sao Korn Hiao Interling, was the Sau of Kentung State. This was the largest state in the Federation and was separated from the rest by the Salween River, which ran from north to south along the length of the Shan Plateau. Sao Koong Kyo was a distinguished-looking man with sharp features. His tall and thin appearance was accentuated by his wearing a high-pointed turban. As most Soboa, Canton grandfather, was a good and just ruler. Unlike some of them, however, he had, he had advanced ideas. This was demonstrated by his decision to have his grand palace architecturally designed after returning from India in 1903. The smaller houses built for his two eldest sons, his wives and other relatives, all contained modern conveniences. During his rule from 1897 to 1935, he also encouraged modernization of offices and other buildings in the state, like my paternal grandfather, he was well respected by the British government and had been decorated with the KSM and the CIE. Also, like most Sorbai of his time, Kentung grandfather was polygamous. He had six wives, each bearing him two to six children, making 19 altogether. Thus, on my mother's side, we were well endowed with 10 uncles, nine aunts, and countless cousins. I was told that he was quite a character and fair and loving towards all his children. Unfortunately, I did not have a chance to know him well. Kentung was a long way away from Lorsac, and he died when I was only four years old. I did have the opportunity to become well-acquainted with my maternal grandmother, Sao Wo Tip Wong. Once the motor road from Kentung to Lorsak was built, She visited us frequently. She was a wonderful little lady, graceful and softly spoken, always calm and serene. She spent her time growing flowers and vegetables and was a wonderful cook using homegrown vegetables and herbs. And that's the end of Chapter 2. I hope you enjoyed it. Thank you.